Here's an honest question. How are you supposed to know what to do with your money? Very few of us are exposed to meaningful advice on how to manage our finances. Even fewer have the means to get professional financial guidance. Betterment is a platform that was built to do something radical, to give accessible financial advice that puts you first. If you're like most Americans, your money is probably sitting in a savings account, likely earning you next to nothing. Maybe you have an investment account that you're not really sure what to do with. Betterment can help you make sense of what to do with your money. Investing involves risk, but you don't have to know the ins and the outs of the stock market to start investing for your future. Betterment's technology will put your money to work choosing the stocks and strategies that are right for you because we know you have other things to do. Betterment's platform can even provide guidance on what financial goals make sense for you. Give your money a new home with Betterment, peace of mind included. Download the Betterment app today. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T for the betterment of you. Dumb crooks, celebrity morons, idiot politicians, and other true stories of individuals. I'm Darren Marlar, the creator and host of Daily Dose of Weird News. Every weekday, I bring you a new episode highlighting some of the stories you don't get with other news outlets. A new podcast every weekday. Get the podcast today for Apple, Android, or your favorite podcasting app at DailyDoseOfWeirdNews.com. This podcast is part of the BombPod Media Network. I remember choking awake. I was on my back, my hands on my chest, and I was stuck in that position. My eyes were wild because the whole room was black. I mean, dark as dark could get, which was odd because we lived by a streetlight and that room never got very dark at night to begin with. So it being that dark, that black was terrifying. I couldn't see anything in front of me. There was this pressure on my chest and hands that made it difficult to breathe. I remember choking for air, thinking I had blacked out or was dreaming and would wake up. Then these two great big red eyes opened right in front of my face. No pupils, no iris, just red eyes blinking down at me. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome to Weird Darkness. Here you will find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, unsolved, and unexplained. This episode of Weird Darkness is sponsored by Food for the Poor. All this month, I'm asking you to join me in raising funds to feed children and families who are literally dying of starvation and thirst. My goal is to raise $1,000 before December 1st, and I've already put in my 50 bucks. Can you match that or possibly do more? You can make your donation right now as you listen to the podcast. Just click on the Give Life banner at WeirdDarkness.com. Coming up in this episode… A night of children telling scary stories to each other turns into the real thing. A young girl bumps into her father in the hallway, which is impossible as her father isn't home. James Bond, 007 himself, tells his own personal story of the paranormal. Sir Roger Moore tells of his terrifying experience. A young teen girl wakes up in the dark of night 
being choked by a red-eyed being. Friends hear a crash in the kitchen, and though everything appears normal, what they eventually find is the stuff of nightmares. The discovery of a body in the local river leaves one town with a gruesome mystery and possibly the framing of an innocent man for the murder. Plus, I'll let you know how you can receive the audiobook I narrated, Fright Before Christmas, 13 Tales of Holiday Horrors, absolutely free. I'll also be telling you about something special I'm planning for December. So, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. This will be the first time I have submitted a paranormal story of any kind to a website. Several strange things have happened to me during my life. This was the first incident. It took place when I was around six or seven years old. We lived in the middle of nowhere with our grandmother. Our father was a traveling salesman and we rarely saw him. On one particular night, we were all in bed and shared the same room. I decided it would be fun to try and scare my brother and sister by telling them spooky stories. Well, they got freaked out, and our grandmother came in upset at all the noise we were making. She could hear us downstairs. She told us to go to sleep and stop making noise. I was starting to fall asleep when I heard what sounded like muffled coughing coming from the other side of the room. Hearing the coughing, I was awake. I tried to go back to sleep and then suddenly I heard whispering. I knew that my siblings were asleep, so I was confused as to where this whispering was coming from. There was literally nobody else in the house except my brothers, sisters, and grandma. I started to understand the whispers, something like, go home. I don't know why I did this, but I got up and decided to turn on the light and nothing was in the room with us. I looked everywhere after that. I didn't find anybody. I was extremely freaked out by this, so I went in the living room and told our grandmother that there was someone in the bedroom, and of course she didn't believe me. Ever since that incident, I have been terrified of the dark. Even today, I tend to sleep with at least one light on in the bedroom. My wife and I have been fascinated by the paranormal since we got married. We enjoyed watching paranormal shows about ghost hunting and learning about the subject. We never thought we would share a paranormal experience which also involved our teenage daughter. This experience would have to do with what might have been a doppelganger. At the time, we did not know what these things were called or anything about them at all. 
During the early years of our marriage, we lived in a two-bedroom apartment with our daughter. It was a summer afternoon, and I had decided to go to the gym. Normally, I would be there about an hour, give or take. I'd been gone for just over 20 minutes, according to my wife, when this happened. My wife was doing some house cleaning, vacuuming to be exact, when our daughter came home from cheerleading practice. She greeted my wife and went to her room for a couple of minutes to drop off her gym bag before returning to the living room looking for me. She asked my wife where I was. My wife told our daughter I was at the gym. My daughter asked, did he just leave? And to her surprise, my wife responded, no, he's been gone almost 30 minutes. My daughter got scared and thought maybe her mom was messing with her. Don't say that, she said. I just saw him when I went to my room in the hallway. I greeted him and he answered me back. He said hey and actually passed right next to me. I felt him pass next to me and he said hello to me by name. I even had to move as he passed. My daughter said I walked into our bedroom. I never came out. My wife reassured her that I was gone and had not been back. Our daughter said she never saw my face because whatever that thing was had its head down. She said it was definitely my voice and even described what I was wearing. Our apartment had a narrow hallway that led to the two bedrooms. Hers was on the left and ours on the right. Anyone wanting to exit the apartment from the bedrooms would have to walk into the living room. After I came home from the gym and heard what had happened from my wife, I spoke with my still shaking daughter and reassured her I had been at the gym. Till this day, my daughter, whom now is a mother herself, gets freaked out about this experience. It was years later when we learned about doppelgangers. We don't know what this was, a doppelganger or something else. Whatever it was, it never happened again. Several years ago, James Bond star Roger Moore spoke openly about his own experience with the paranormal. This is his account. Sir Roger Moore said, I was frozen. I wanted to call out and scream, but couldn't speak. I was numb, paralyzed from head to toe. I was sitting bolt upright in my bed and watching a white, ghostly figure moving towards me. It was the apparition of a man. The shape of the body was clearly defined. There was a head, body, and legs, but it was mist-like. I pulled myself together, somehow calmed myself and then tried to communicate with the ghost. I said softly, what do you want? Are you troubled? As I went to move from the bed, the ghost disappeared, just vanished. The second night of Sir Roger's stay, the apparition reappeared. He said, it returned at the exact same time, about 2 a.m. I was petrified. I thought, it's after me. What does it want with me? I tried to make contact once again, but to no avail. It vanished again. In the morning, the roommate asked me, did you see the ghost last night, sir? I replied, good heavens, how do you know about it? 
No, I didn't see it last night. She said, I didn't think you would. I left the hotel but often think about the incident. I never found out what it was all about. When I went to the room on the third night, a Bible, opened on the 23rd Psalm, was beside my bed. I hadn't put the Bible there or opened it, but that night the ghost did not appear. I was in my early teens and had my own room at the time. I'd been having some difficulties sleeping in my own bed for various reasons, and I remember having a very hard time this night in particular. I would sometimes come to my parents and stand at the side of the bed and whisper to wake them up, which scared them to death, and then trade beds with my father, who would stay in my bed. This was the case that night. I believe. It's hard to really remember the circumstances because it happened a few times, and I had taken the side of the bed nobody wanted to sleep on. That side of the bed was close to the wall, with a foot gap. It was hard to scoot into to get into bed, and it was darker on that side of the room for reasons unknown, so we avoided it. More than likely, I took that side because the bed was full and I didn't have a choice. We often saw someone standing against the wall on that side of the bed as well, and had given the shadow a name as a joke to make it less sinister, so this could have played a part in what happened. I remember choking awake. I was on my back, my hands on my chest, and I was stuck in that position. My eyes were wild because the whole room was black, I mean dark as dark could get which was odd because we lived by a streetlight and that room never got very dark at night to begin with. So it being that dark, that black, was terrifying. I couldn't see anything in front of me. There was this pressure on my chest and hands that made it difficult to breathe. I remember choking for air, thinking I had blacked out or was dreaming and would wake up. Then these two great big red eyes opened right in front of my face. No pupils, no iris, just red eyes blinking down at me. I started to make out this humped-up shape of something sitting on me in the dark. It was definitely sitting on me, just looking down hatefully. I started to panic, realizing I was stuck. At this time, I'd had so many experiences that I wasn't sure if this was a dream or just another one of those experiences. And I woke up. The room was back to its usual lightness. Everything was cast in a blue night hue, and there were no red eyes. I was able to breathe again. I sat up and looked around at the bed, then I climbed over every single person laying there and ran to my room. I think that was one of the last times I ever slept in there. I have two younger sisters, but as far as I know, they didn't seem to have the same problems. I did have a couple of other episodes of sleep paralysis and started experiencing insomnia nightly. 
I had a routine in high school where I would sleep a few hours, wake up at 1 a.m. naturally, write until 3 a.m., and go back to bed for a couple more hours. This all started after the old hag incident. I just stopped sleeping well after that. Up next, the discovery of a body in the Seneca River, decomposed beyond recognition, left the town of Baldwinsville with a nearly unsolvable mystery. But the clues unraveled to reveal a dastardly plot against an honest man by a craven murderer and his hapless cohort. If you're already a subscriber to Weird Darkness, please post a rating and review of the show in the iTunes store. Everyone who leaves a review automatically receives the audiobook Fright Before Christmas – 13 Tales of Holiday Horror through the month of November 2017 while supplies last. You can hear a free sample of this audiobook or purchase it for your own collection on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. But if you'd like to receive this audiobook absolutely free, you can post a rating and review of Weird Darkness on iTunes. Simply post your review, then email me a screenshot to let me know you've done so. Posting an iTunes review helps people find the show more easily, helps grow the show, and encourages people to send their stories for future episodes. In fact, a huge thanks to so many people who've left their reviews just since our last episode. Waz6070 says, This is great. Can't say more than others haven't said. Tiger Blood Kitten One says, Darren proves you can be creepy and can still keep you entertained. Erica T1973 says, I love the narrator's voice and the topics and stories. Great sound effects, too. I'm sure this will quickly become a favorite of mine. Jill Adney 18 says, Absolutely love everything about this show. Loves great stories said, My work has me driving a minimum of 1,200 miles a week. Your podcast makes the time fly by. What a voice. Keep up the great stories. And Eyeball32000 said, Great stories told with the perfect voice. Thanks to all of you for leaving your ratings and reviews of Weird Darkness on iTunes this week. I really appreciate you showing that you truly are official weirdos. If you haven't already done so, please leave a review and a rating on iTunes. I'd greatly appreciate it. Now, let's step back into the Weird Darkness. Two men fishing in the Seneca River near Baldwinsville, New York in June 1874 came across what appeared to be a bundle of clothes floating in the water. Closer inspection revealed that it was the body of a man, weighted so firmly that they could not drag it ashore without assistance. The feet had been tied to a 68-pound rock. Examination revealed that a second rock tied to the neck had slipped away allowing the body to float into sight. The right side of his skull had been smashed, and the Baldwinsville medical examiner determined that the man had been murdered, but after several months in the river, his features were unrecognizable. 
The discovery caused much excitement in the quiet farming village of Baldwinsville. No one in the area had been reported missing, and with the body so badly decomposed, it seemed unlikely ever to be identified. Gradually, though, the contents of his pockets – a tin spoon, a package of sewing needles, and a piece of calico cloth – provided enough clues to determine that the dead man was Francis A. Colvin, who had boarded for a time with John Pickard and his wife. The spoon was from a set of nine he had purchased, six of which he gave to Mrs. Pickard and one he carried in his pocket to take medicine for his lungs. He had used the needles to attempt to sew an extra pocket into his coat. Mrs. Pickard completed the pocket for him and also added lapels to the coat. She gave him the calico cloth, part of which he wrapped around his toes to prevent chafing. An examination of his coat revealed the pocket and the lapels, and the piece of cloth was still wrapped around his toes. A dentist who had extracted teeth from Francis Colvin was able to confirm the identification. Francis Colvin had no family in the area and no friends except the Pickards. After returning from the Civil War, he had lived almost as a hermit in a shack in the woods until the Pickards offered him room and board at their house. Around December 1873, he left their house to go to work on the farm of Daniel Lindsay and had expressed his plans to move to Syracuse for a higher-paying job, so no one was suspicious when he was no longer seen around Baldwinsville. Colvin had been a hard-working and frugal man and had amassed a nest egg of about $3,000 in cash and notes, which he was known to carry on his person. It was now missing. He had held a mortgage of about $350 on property owned by John Pickard, which had been transferred to a man named Payne Bigelow. When questioned, Bigelow said he had purchased the mortgage from Bishop Vader, a farmhand who also worked for Daniel Lindsay. Vader was arrested in connection with the murder of Francis Colvin. Vader professed innocence and said that a man named Dwayne Peck was responsible for the murder. Outside of jail, Daniel Lindsay's son, Owen, was also spreading the rumor that Dwayne Peck had murdered Francis Colvin. The police arrested Peck but soon determined that he had no connection to Colvin's death and let him go. Bishop Vader was a somewhat simple-minded man. Not an idiot, the district attorney would later say, but a man that has not the moral courage to stand up and say no when one that had great influence over him shall tell him what to do. After prolonged questioning, Vader revealed that the man who'd been telling him what to do was Owen Lindsay. When Vader and Colvin were both working on his father's farm, Owen told Vader to find out how much money Colvin was carrying. Suspecting nothing, Colvin told him. Owen Lindsay then formulated a simple plan to take it. He told Vader to lead Colvin into the barn the morning of December 19, 1873. As Colvin sat milking a cow, Lindsay came up behind him and hit him in the head twice with the flat end of an axe. Lindsay went through Colvin's pockets and removed a pocketbook containing cash and notes. He gave $500 to Vader and kept $1,500 for himself. They hid the body, then Lindsay told Vader to hire a boat. 
If Lindsay's father asked where Colvin was, Vader was to tell him he left for the city. He gave Vader two mortgages from the pocketbook and told him to go to Syracuse, pretend to be Colvin, and sell them. Vader decided it was easier to sell them in Baldwinsville, so sold one to Payne Bigelow. When the sun went down, they put the body in a sleigh and took it to the boat Vader had rented. They put the body in the boat and Lindsay tied the rocks to it. When they reached the deepest part of the river, they threw the body overboard. After Vader had told his story, the police examined the sleigh and found bloodstains in the floorboards. They arrested Owen Lindsay and charged both men with the murder of Francis Colvin. Though Bishop Vader and Owen Lindsay were both charged with first-degree murder, Lindsay was considered the primary defendant. They would be tried separately, with Lindsay's case taken first. The prosecution spent the first part of the trial introducing testimony to prove that the body found in the river was that of Francis Colvin. When this was done, the principal witness against Lindsay would be Bishop Vader. Lindsay's attorney objected to Vader testifying as he was charged with the same crime. The judge heard arguments on both sides of this question, then ruled that Vader could not testify against his co-defendant. The prosecution then changed the charge against Bishop Vader, effectively dropping the charges against him while leaving them free to charge him again later. Vader's testimony and cross-examination took more than a day and was quite damaging to Lindsay. Under oath, he told the same story that he had told the police. It also came out that Vader was left-handed and the blow to the back of Colvin's head had been delivered by someone who was right-handed. The state then introduced two college professors who had microscopically examined the blood found in the sleigh. Lindsay had contended that the stains had come from slaughtered pigs which had been carried in the sleigh. In new and controversial testimony, both professors concluded from the size of the corpuscles that the blood was from a human, not a pig. The defense challenged the date of the murder, introducing witnesses who claimed to have played parlor croquet with him on December 19th, had seen him at a birthday party, and had seen him slaughtering pigs four days after he was allegedly murdered. They contended that Bishop Vader alone was guilty of the murder and had falsely implicated Lindsay. The trial lasted ten days. After seven hours of deliberation, the jury returned a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. Owen Lindsay was sentenced to be hanged on March 26, 1875, but the verdict was appealed, postponing the execution for nearly a year. His attorneys challenged the validity of Bishop Vader, an accomplice in the murder, as a witness. The New York Supreme Court confirmed that the criminal courts have discretionary power in this respect and let the verdict stand. On February 11, 1876, Owen Lindsay was hanged in the courtyard of the Onondaga County Penitentiary. He was urged to confess his crime, but he maintained his innocence to the end. friend of mine and his wife bought a house in the south side of town about a decade ago 
and invited my wife and I to the housewarming party. My wife and I showed up and brought an ice cream cake and a stack of new dishes for their housewarming gift because, during the move, many of the dishes got broken. When we arrived, we put the dishes and the cake on the kitchen counter, and the four of us went into the living room to watch a movie. The movie was a post-apocalyptic story and was really bleak, and about ten minutes in we heard a crash come from the kitchen. We all jumped, then ran into the kitchen and looked in, but we didn't turn on the lights, only used the light spilling into the kitchen from the outside of the living room, and we could see the cake and the dishes sitting still on the table, and concluded the noise had come from outside. We then returned to the living room and continued to watch the movie. Twenty minutes later, we heard an even louder crash that definitely came from the kitchen. We all ran into the kitchen and turned on the lights. The plates were still on the table, unbroken and in pristine condition. However, smeared into the icing of the cake were the words, I am in hell. My wife and I made an excuse and split. During the two weeks that followed that night, my friends heard constant crashing noises and cold spots were randomly appearing throughout the house. My friend managed to sell the house pretty quickly after that. Five years later, he did a search online regarding the house and found that it was owned in the 1950s by a vicious gangster. As this is the last episode of Weird Darkness before the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday, I'd like to thank every single one of you who have made this journey so rewarding for me. I never knew, in October of 2015, that this idea of mine could or would take off. I only hoped it would. Today, two years later, I have over 2,000 people downloading each episode of the podcast, and that means the world to me. If I have a chance to fight over the turkey's wishbone this week and I win the break, my wish will be for all of you to be as blessed as you have made me feel. Thank you very much. This episode of Weird Darkness is sponsored by Food for the Poor. All this month, I'm asking you to join me in raising funds to feed children and families who are literally dying of starvation and thirst. My goal is to raise $1,000 before December 1st, and I've already put in the first $50. Can I count on you to match that? You can do so right now by clicking the Give Life banner at WeirdDarkness.com. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. Again, if you like the show, please post a rating and review on iTunes. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true. The Haunting of My Grandmother's Cottage was submitted to MyHauntedLife2.com by Mort Jameson in Wisconsin. Shaken, Not Scared, Roger Moore's experience with the paranormal was written by G. Michael Vasey for MyHauntedLife2.com. My Doppelganger was submitted to WeirdDarkness.com by Isaac M. The Red-Eyed Being That Held Me Down was submitted to MyHauntedLife2.com by Beth. Tormented by a Spirit in Hell submitted to WeirdDarkness.com by Paul S. And The Baldwinsville Homicide was written by Robert Wilhelm 
for MurderByGaslight.com. Find links to all of these stories in the show notes. Music in this episode is provided by Shadows Symphony. You can find them online at Facebook.com slash Shadows Symphony. And before I go, I want to tell you something I'm really looking forward to. I'm teaming up with author Sylvia Schultz this December and we'll both be bringing you a very dark 12 days of Christmas. From December 13th through December 24th, each day for all 12 days, Sylvia will be posting something creepy and paranormal on her website, and I will be coming out with an episode of Weird Darkness each of those 12 days, narrating stories from Sylvia's new book, The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays. You can find a link to that book in the show notes. So be sure to mark your calendars for the Weird Darkness 12 Days of Christmas beginning December 13th. Until next time, I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit today. Restrictions apply. You ever hear something and know the world will never be the same? Houston, we have liftoff. Well, wait until you hear this one. Half price coffee. That's right. Get into McDonald's weekdays before 10.30 a.m. for any size premium roast coffee or iced coffee. Both made with 100% Arabica beans, both half the price. Good is brewing. And that's the sound of your morning changing. Limited time only. May not be combined with any offer or combo meal at participating McDonald's.